You are listening to a series called Shadows, Discovering Christ Through the Old Testament from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Um, welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and I too, just like you, am a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. And so I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to open the pages of scripture and um, learn more of that mercy and grace so that we may live differently in light of it and leave here more encouraged. Uh, this is our 10th and final week in our 10-week series uh, of shadows where we've been working to discover Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you know where, or if you kind of find the minor prophets of the Old Testament and you come across Joel, Amos, or Obadiah, um, Jonah's really close, all right? It's uh, like one or two pages there in your text. And if you enjoy, if you've enjoyed the shadow series um, of, of finding Christ in the Old Testament, Alec Mortier's book, Look to the Rock, would be a cool like read uh, to kind of get more into this, as well as anything by uh, Dr. Ed Clowney, um, who's with Jesus now. But uh, he, he has written a lot on this and preached a lot about Christ in the Old Testament. Well, as we begin, and as we have for the last nine weeks, I want us to start with a perspective and understanding the Old Testament. So the Bible was written with a trajectory in mind. It's a grand narrative, one big storyline that works in four major parts of creation, redemption, or creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. See, the Bible is one seamless book, though made up of 66 smaller books, and two Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament, it still forms one seamless book that's all written to describe God's plan to rescue and redeem his people, his children. And so what this means in part is that even in the Old Testament, we get glimpses or types or tastes or shadows of the Redeemer who will come to make all things perfectly right again. So the Old Testament stories in the Bible they're not merely for us to find people to admire um, their obedience and their faith, though certainly we can admire those and, and, and try to model our life after a lot of what we see there, but they're mainly there to foreshadow the true and better hero who acted for us and lived as us. So of course, we're speaking of Jesus Christ. So today we're gonna be looking at Jesus through the lens of Jonah and the great fish. Uh, before we go any further, though, I want to um, just state the obvious that I'm aware that there's a lot of debate and questions about the book of Jonah because there's some pretty wild stuff that we read about in this little book, some pretty extraordinary things. But we also base a lot of our Christian faith on the fact that our Savior was born of a virgin. Um, so I guess it all takes faith, and there's nothing uh, more radical, I guess, than, than anything more radical than the other within the Christian faith and so we ask for faith to believe this. The way that I receive the book of Jonah practically is I see it as an actual historical account of a real man uh, who uh, experienced actual events that actually took place in human history. And there's a lot of evidence within the book of Jonah itself, but also throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that validates this. But the greatest validation for Jonah being legit is found in Matthew um, Jesus speaks of Jonah and the events that take place in this book. And he looks at them and speaks of them as if they actually took place in history. 
And so if Jesus believes it, I believe it, and I ask you to believe it as well. All right, so let's get to work in uh, the book of Jonah. Let's bring up the house lights a little bit so that we can see the word. Um, Let's look in verse one of chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Their evilness, their wickedness, their trouble that they're involved in concerns me. It concerns me. And what Jonah hears, understanding context, which we'll, we'll kind of unpack that for you this morning quickly, but what Jonah hears is their wickedness is a concern to me and I want to be merciful to them. And so he heard little to nothing about wrath and judgment. He hears God speaking of more like compassion. God's essentially telling a preacher, a prophet, right? Like Jonah was a prophet of God who, who did a lot of, of work for him. This is one aspect of what Jonah did. Jonah was a phenomenal prophet that God used throughout biblical history. But he's telling this preacher to go to like the most cruel and brutal city known to man, to go into the very center of it and tell everybody to repent and to change their way of living, to admit that their way of life and their view is wrong and to live the way he's recommending that they live as he gives this message from God to them. It's like going during World War II into Berlin or Moscow during the Cold War or even Jerusalem today and just saying, guys, let's put our differences aside, live the way I'm asking you to live according to my preference from what God's told me, change what you're doing, let's, let's get along, right? How would that go? How would that play out? I would say at best you'd be ignored. Um, at best you'd be mocked, made fun of, ridiculed, stuff thrown at you. Uh, worst, uh, you'd probably be persecuted, tortured, maybe killed. And that's exactly what Jonah is being asked to do. But there's more than meets the eye here. There's a lot more going on. You see, Jonah is also dealing with racism. You see, Jonah is an Israelite and he's being told to go to Nineveh to preach a message from the God of Jacob, God's people, the Israelites, the God of the Israelites, go preach to the Ninevites who aren't God's people. He doesn't want to go offer God's message of mercy and grace and compassion to those people. See, Nineveh was a nemesis to everybody, but especially God's people, the Israelites. So Noah and the ark, right? Noah, his family starts everything over again. One of his sons was Ham. Ham had a son named Nimrod. Nimrod, great name, love it. Um, Name your kid that. Uh, Y'all have ridiculous names for some of your kids. Pick Nimrod. Um, Just kidding, I'm just joking. So Nimrod, he founded Nineveh. There are some weird names out there. You know what I'm talking about. He founded Nineveh. Nineveh becomes the capital of the Assyrian empire. They built this empire, not on virtue, but on violence. They established their kingdom through cruelty, brutality, hate, and death. And for 14 centuries, this, the culture of Nineveh continues to progressively get worse 
and more intense. And then comes Jonah. To give you an example of their brutality that, that gave way to their horrific reputation, uh, for generations, a, a Ninevite king would defeat an opponent, a king or commander. They would kill him. They would bring his body back to Nineveh, chop off his arms and legs, hang his torso at the main gate until it slowly rotted away or became food for animals and birds. It was very common for there to be stacks and stacks and bones and uh, piles of bones at the main, at the different gates going into the city. Typically the Ninevite king would then have the limbs that were cut off of the, of the king that was defeated and send them like the Stanley Cup or like a championship trophy with the parade, send these limbs of this defeated foe around the city and around their nation to bring about a lot of national pride and, and to show uh, their, their power over the other nations. And what might be worst of all of this is that for 14 centuries, this continues and so it becomes normal. It's not brutal anymore. Maybe it was brutal at first. It's like, that's intense. But then as that generation gives birth to another generation, which gives birth to another generation, this becomes normal. It's normalized. They're inoculated to just how horrible it is. They have grown accustomed to it. It's no longer brutal. So Nineveh was a massive empire. It was a criminal empire and a powerhouse of cruelty and brutality. Jonah, go to that Nineveh. Now you can see maybe why he does what he does in verse three. Look at verse three. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. This is the other side of the world during this time. This was like Spain. Like he was trying to get as far away as he possibly could. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish. His hope was to go away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah essentially says, I don't wanna do anything for those wicked Ninevites. They're horrible. They're horrible. It's, it's clear and obvious that Jonah hears exactly what God is asking him to do. He just doesn't want to. He wants to do his own thing in his own way. And look at verse four, and this is grace. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty storm, a raging. It was, it was a, a tempest on the sea so that the ship would fall apart, break together or break apart. But the mariners, the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. Like they were crying out to every God they could kind of think of. They were just, just in case that was him, right? Let's just list off everything, every deity that we can come up with. And they began hurling the cargo, which was their purpose, was to carry cargo from here to here. They're abandoning their whole way of life to try to stay alive. They know this is gonna cost them a lot when they get to the dock. They just wanna be alive. So they start throwing the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and then laying down and was fast asleep. So the captain comes to him and he says, what do you mean? Like, what's going on? Why are you sleeping? Like arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another in verse seven, come, let us paper, rock, scissors, sort of, like cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and it came upon, fell upon Jonah. So they turned to Jonah and they're like, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Like, what's your occupation? Like, what's the purpose of your travel? What's the occasion for you journeying with us? Like, where do you come from? What's your country? 
Give us context of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the God of all gods. I know the God of this very storm, the one who has created all things. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what have you done? Like, do you realize what's happened? For the men knew that he was trying to disappear from the presence of the Lord because he told them that. So part of his response, like, what are you doing here? Why are you traveling? I'm trying to run away from God. I'm, I'm trying to run away from what he's asked me to do. I said to him, well, what shall we do so that the sea would quiet down for us because the sea was growing more and more tempestuous, more violent. It was just getting more intense. How can you fix this chaos? What can we do? He said to them, pick me up, which literally means lift or raise me up to be pardoned, which is a lot like what we learned about in the bronze, the bronze snake when it was lifted up. Much like Christ said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. He says, pick me up and, and you'll be pardoned. Lift me up and you'll be pardoned. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. His sin and rebellion impacted others. It's, it's true of us too. You see, Jonah was appointed by God as being the cause of this storm. Uh, they found this out through the casting of lots and Jonah owns up to this guilt, this responsibility. And then Jonah was asked to be thrown overboard because he believed that that would stop the storm. Jonah didn't jump in. Instead, he tells the sailors, he gives them a saving message, a gospel message, if you will. He says, throw me in and you will live. It sounds honorable, like he's actually caring for these sailors. Like, man, Jonah, he has a compassionate heart. He wants to save the sailors. No, Jonah would rather drown than obey God. He'd rather die than to take God's message of compassion and mercy to people he hated. You see, his death meant Nineveh would never hear from God. I'm convinced that was his hope. When he said, pick me up and throw me in, he was thinking, and Nineveh will continue to be damned. Essentially, and bluntly, Jonah would rather commit suicide than repent and go offer Nineveh hope. He would rather die than see Nineveh turn towards God. That is such hatred. That's heavy. Look at verse 13 not wanting to be responsible for his death. They're like, the, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not because the sea continued to get even more and more intense and violent and tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life because they knew they're throwing him into his death and they didn't wanna be responsible for the blood on his hands, their blood on his hands. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, has, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea and the sea calmed. It ceased from its raging, its anger. The sailors 
tried to make it on their own, but they ultimately had to take Jonah's offer as like a last resort and they throw him overboard and they were miraculously rescued and saved from the storm. And then verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, the, the, the Lord of Jonah, the God of Jonah. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord of thankfulness and made vows. And the Lord uniquely designed and divinely prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. When you ask most people uh, what the great fish did to Jonah, and I know commonly it's referred to as a whale, uh, but it's not in scripture. It's called a great fish. We'll just call it a great fish. But if you ask somebody, like, what did the great fish do to Jonah? Like, he ate him, he swallowed him, you know. The fish rescued Jonah. It saved Jonah. This fish represents grace. Chapter two, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. I called out to the Lord when I needed it most, and he answered me. This reminds me of our reading from this week in Hebrews chapter four, or last week. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our, and help in time of need when we need it most. I called out to God out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of shale, I cried and you heard my voice the sailors threw him in, right? But he attributes in verse three, he attributes that to God, knowing that it was ultimately God. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And he's attributing God as being in control of creation. You see this? And your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said to myself, I'm driven away from your sight. I'm forgotten. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. If you envision like Jonah, like kind of floating around and the fish kind of comes up to the surface and, and saves him, he, he doesn't see it that way. Um, look, consider how deep he was in the water. I'm driven away from your sight, yet shall again some look from your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots, at the base of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and all the way to your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They don't experience steadfast love who serve other gods and who worship other things. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. I will do what you have me to do. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance and victory belongs to the Lord. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the first time he ran the other direction out of fear. Also, that deep hatred for the Ninevites. He did not want to do what God called him to do. You see, he first needed to realize that he was a sinner that was saved and rescued by grace so that he'd be able to go preach to other sinners who perhaps could be saved by grace. Jonah's in this storm. He's caught in this storm and he's thrown overboard into the raging waters of God's wrath and and death. He needed to be rescued and God saved him by grace. He gave him what he didn't ask for. He gave him what he didn't deserve. He was merciful to him. And even if Jonah were a phenomenal swimmer, he could not have swam himself to life. His efforts were entirely insufficient. He was alive because God wanted him alive. And he learned that through this time in the fish. If Jonah was gonna be saved, it would only be through grace. And if Nineveh was to be saved, it would only be through grace. And whether or not Jonah remained completely conscious the entire time he was in this fish, he was alert enough at some point during his three days in the fish to realize that he had not drowned, but he was being kept alive. And so he offers a thanksgiving psalm, the psalm of Jonah, if you will. And it indicates that Jonah clearly understood that he'd been given life and a second chance instead of death that he knew he deserved. He was alive, even though he did not deserve to be. He had not drowned, even though death was the punishment he earned and deserved and even wanted. Jonah had experienced the grace of God firsthand and he knew it. He knew that God had not treated him as his actions deserved. You see, Jonah in the raging water of God's wrath and judgment is a picture of us in our sin. And without a savior, it's guaranteed death. It's over. And it's what we all deserve. Because there's not a one of us, there's no one that does perfectly good all the time. And there's no amount of work that we can do to escape the raging waters of God's wrath towards us and our sin. And just as God had no obligation to send Jonah a rescuer, a fish, God has no obligation to send Nineveh a rescuer. God has no obligation to send you or me a rescuer, but he does. God sends us a rescuer because he wants to and because he loves us. And he wants you and his family forever. Friend, this is why we must never get over Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's because we deserve death forever and always and only. And yet we get life forever, always and only. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it obeyed him. It's beautiful. It vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Sounds disgusting. That's awful. But it beats the other alternative, right? And there's two ways out. So it's grace that he vomited him out. Okay, it's implied grace. Chapter three and verse one. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So there's, there's a lot of grace and perseverance towards Jonah 
and towards Nineveh. He says, arise, sounds a lot like chapter one. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it or, or proclaim the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That should have been chapter one, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, not just in their brutality, but in their size. Like it, it would take you three days journey to cross it. Jonah began to go into the city, a day's journey, close to downtown, close to halfway. And he calls out, verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be demolished. 40 days, Nineveh is gonna be overthrown, totally destroyed. There won't be one stone on top of another stone. And you, you get and you understand context, you perceive, and of course I'm, in, I'm, I'm implying, you know, um, with emphasis, a certain thing that I believe is there. There's like an angst and an excitement. Like you almost get the sense that he's, excited to see Nineveh overthrown and destroyed. He walks into the city and shouts, I see an angst, I see excitement, I see happiness. <laughs> and he shouts, in 40 days, y'all are going to be done with. 40 days, it's going down. He's thinking, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna obey, but I'm still gonna find a way of doing it my way. Verse five, one of the most shocking sentences in the Bible. The people of Nineveh believed God. That's ridiculous. In fact, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, which represented, it was symbolic for repentance and deep remorse for sin from the greatest of them to the least of them. They repented. God spared the Ninevites. This should give us a lot of hope. This should give anybody hope. Nineveh was horrible. They were awful. God can't save me from this. Man, I've done too much wrong. Yeah, right. Look at Nineveh. He saved them out of nowhere. We're not told anybody's praying for Nineveh. We're not told there's people there crying out on his behalf for God to change Nineveh. Nope. God just... Hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh, out of nowhere. And he saves Nineveh. This tells me that anybody can get in on this. You can get in on what God's doing. If Nineveh can get, get in, you can get in. You've got no excuses. Nineveh, they were horrible. In fact, of all the revivals, the great revivals in the history of the world, few, if any, can compare with this mass repentance of ancient Nineveh. It was a great city, a very proud, very proud city. And then suddenly, with a horrible sermon, probably had terrible PowerPoint slides, probably didn't even like the people at all, right? We know that he hated the people. He just walks in, drops it, and leaves. And they're humbled. They're broken. They're humbled by the holiness of God and the power of God from the greatest of them, the king on the throne, to the meanest, cruelest criminal. Throughout human history, this event has no parallel. We can't compare this to anything else. There is no event on record that, that can be compared whatsoever with this sudden fast 
and mass repentance of such a horrible people. The word, look at verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. A sign of deep remorse and repentance, brokenness and humility. And he issued an official proclamation, an edict, a rule and published throughout all of Nineveh. And it went to this effect, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Your dog has to fast. If I've got to fast, your dog has to fast. We're all fasting. And let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily, fervently, passionately to God. Let every one of you turn from his evil way. This is the proclamation that was sent through the whole city. Turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Because I'm telling you, they were brutal people. And then this, this is a part of the edict. Who knows? God may relent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we won't die. Signed, King of Nineveh. Simple faith. Simple belief. I don't know. Who knows? God might change our situation. The smallest amount of faith, my friend. Who knows? The king doesn't know if God will save him. He knows he needs to be saved. He believes God could. He knows he doesn't deserve mercy. He knows they need grace. And he knows that it's not something that they can just do to change things. It's gotta be if God determines it this way. And get this in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they repented and turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. God moved with compassion, did not destroy them, but changed them. He didn't change his mind. They changed their way. They had repented And had they not, they would have been destroyed. However, they repented. And God never said that he would destroy a humble, repentant Nineveh. He said he would destroy the violent, sinful Nineveh. And through this event, they changed. Now, there shouldn't be a verse, uh, chapter four. I'm not gonna add to the Bible. And if me or any other communicator adds to scripture, leave, run as fast as you can and encourage everyone to do the same. I'm not adding to scripture, but if I could add scripture, I would love for there to be a verse 11 of chapter three that read this. So Nineveh repents and Jonah arose. I tried to write it in the ESV. And Jonah arose to return home, rejoicing all the way for all the Lord had accomplished. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But here's the shocking ending of Jonah. Chapter four and verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly for he was angry. It literally tortured Jonah to his core and he was livid. He was furious and he prayed to the Lord. Here's here's his prayer. It wasn't God changed my heart. God, give me your eyes to see things the way you see them. Here's his prayer. Oh Lord, 
Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, when you called me to leave to go to Nineveh? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew it. I just knew you'd end up rescuing people who don't deserve it. That's just like you to go do such a ridiculous thing. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh to begin with. I was afraid this would happen because it's just like you do this sort of thing. I mean, it was, he was furious. Now, look at the following verse. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. He tried taking it himself by telling him to throw him overboard. Now he's asking God, just take me out for it's better for me to die than to live. Kill me, just kill me. That is an idol of the heart crying out because it was disappointed by what it had hoped in. Anytime we have that feeling, it's most often attached to something that we placed a lot of value in that disappointed us called an idol of our heart. And when that idol of our heart gets pushed off the shelf of our heart and crashes and disappoints us, it's hard to live with ourselves because that was going to save us. That was our identity. That informed my worth. That informed my value. And when it disappointed me, I can't live with it. Just take me. A functional savior was being misplaced. Just take my life from me. I'd rather die than live. Jonah cared so much about his enemies being punished that he would rather die than for them to receive grace. That is heavy. Now I'm going to summarize the rest of the book for you. Jonah goes out of the city on a ridge looking at the city, I think he's there to watch God's judgment. I think he's still hopeful that maybe he misunderstood and maybe there's still gonna be a chance that they're gonna be destroyed. So he goes off to the edge of the city to look in, to watch, and he's pouting outside the city. He's hot, he's complaining about the sun. So God uniquely designs, divinely creates a plant and it covers Jonah from the hot sun. Jonah is so happy. God kills the plant. Jonah's angry that God kills the plant. Why'd you kill the plant? God teaches Jonah that he cares more about a plant dying than people dying. And I find that very convicting. For those who are Christians in the room, please, let's be more concerned with people than our comfort, our possessions, and even our reputation. Through Jonah, we learn of God's amazing and pursuing grace and compassion. We learn through Jonah's story that God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than our human ability to mess things up. I mean, do you see the stubbornness of God? His relentless pursuit that he's, he's so relentless to accomplish his will and his plan, regardless of how we might try to prevent it. 
regardless of how Jonah was carrying himself, God was gonna do what he was gonna do. That's grace. Now we see it as God stopping our plans. We see it as God crushing our dreams, but it's God directing us to something better. It's for something better that God directs things the way that he does. And we learn about this all through scripture, but there's one verse that really a lot of people cling to and it's in Romans chapter eight. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. And perhaps you, like Jonah, have tried running away from God, trying to create a certain distance between yourself and God, trying to maybe silence his pursuit of you by living a certain rebellious lifestyle. Like, I'm gonna show you, like, I care so little about what you think. I'm gonna go live a horrible lifestyle for a while just to get you off my back. That's what Jonah's trying to do here. That's what many try to do. And my hope is if that's you, and I've been there before, truly. And I hope if that's you, that you discover what Jonah discovered that's true, that's pinned in Psalm 139 and verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. In fact, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, think about Jonah, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So for those who are Christians in the room, and you know right now you're in the middle of intentional rebellion. You know that you are carelessly living a sinful lifestyle, trampling the blood of Christ, as Hebrews would refer to it as. Friend, I want you to know, even in your rebellion and angst against God, for whatever has happened that's bringing this about in you, I pray that you see that even in your rebellion, his hand is leading you. Even in your rebellion, he's guiding you. Even in your hatred towards him, his right hand is holding you fast. You can't out-sin God's grace. And you can't outrun his presence. Jonah is learning this. And I hope you learn this. And return to the Lord in humble obedience and repentance. Stop living so carelessly or intentionally sinful as a way of trying to communicate something passively, aggressively to God, humble yourself and return to him. That is life. It's life. Jesus is the greater Jonah and he succeeded where Jonah failed. And in sending Jonah as a missionary to Nineveh, God is showing his grace and his faithfulness. Centuries later, God would send another missionary to a group of sinful people. Only this missionary went willingly and joyfully because he knew the heart of God. In fact, he was the heart of God. Jesus Christ is considered the word, like in John chapter one, because he himself was God's message. Jesus was everything God wanted to say to the world wrapped up in a person. Jesus is the greater missionary. And the person and work of Jesus is God proclaiming to mankind, I love you and you must trust me. I will forgive you and I want you to be with me. 
And instead of fleeing from God's call in rebellion and running away from his enemies, Jesus runs towards his enemies in full submission to the Father's will, regardless of what it would end up costing him, knowing what it would end up costing him. Fully aware that death was his destiny, Jesus pursues God's rescue mission with total engagement and with joyful heart so that God's enemies, you and I, and anyone who would humble themselves to look to him would become God's friends, his sons, his daughters. See, Jonah is a foreshadowing of Christ as he gives his life as a ransom for many, but with this significant difference. Jonah was thrown into the raging sea of God's wrath because of his own sin and rebellion. But Jesus experienced the sea of God's wrath on the cross because of your sin. That's the difference. God threw Jesus, his son, overboard, if you will, in order to rescue you from the raging waters of God's wrath, which is what you deserve and what I deserve. And Jesus, just like Jonah, would spend three days in darkness, utter darkness and death. But unlike Jonah, Jesus would emerge with a wholehearted determination to pursue his enemies with life-giving love and life-shaping grace. And Jesus goes on this mission because he wanted to, not because he had to. And he does this not out of reluctance, but out of joy. Whereas Jonah is deeply concerned with self-protection and pride and self-preservation, Jesus is concerned with joyful, humble self-sacrifice. And when God's mercy was shown to Jonah and his enemies, Jonah got mad. He got very angry. But Jesus was the happy, glorious extension of God's grace towards his enemies. Not angry and with an angst, but with joy and gladness of heart. I mean, the story of Jonah is a story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance, of hate and of love. And this story of Jonah reveals the fact that while you are a great sinner, Jesus is a greater savior. And yes, your sin reaches far, but God's grace is deeper still. This story shows that God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels, a label that applies to every single one of us. And this story shows that God comes after us not to frustratingly strip away our freedoms, but to affectionately strip away our slavery so that we might become truly free. It's God working in spite of us, God working for us so that we could be made happy and whole and experience a relationship with him so that we could be content regardless of what we have or don't have, knowing whose we are and who we are in light of the finished work of Jesus and knowing for certain that after we leave this life, things get nothing but better, gloriously and infinitely better. I remember back in uh, the summer of 2010, uh, our kids were, what, eight, six, and four. And um, I went on my very first sabbatical. We went to Ocean Isle Beach, North Carolina. The waves on the Atlantic side, you go to the Gulf for like the cool sand, like this nice sand and clear water, Zero waves. You don't, you don't ride waves at the Gulf. You ride waves in the Atlantic where you can't see the water. You can't see your feet in the water. You, you can't see what's around you. It's dark. It's like nasty, but the waves are epic, okay? 
So we go out there and you probably won't do this to your kids. We just let our kids swim in the ocean. It's a lot of fun. And we attach a rope to their ankles. So if they go under, we can just pull them in without having to go get them. Just kidding, we don't do that. But we do give them boogie boards and they're attached to like a wrist thing. <clears throat> and so our, our thought was it'd be like a bobber, you know, like when you're fishing, <laughs> you see the, <clears throat> see the kid and the, the boogie board disappears. It's like, oh, something got him. Um, let's go, go see if we can find that kid. <laughs> so uh, we went there with some friends and uh, in the summer of 2010, uh, and we're watching, I'm there with my buddy Curtis, um, preacher friend from Virginia, dear brother, and his wife, Myra. And we're watching this big waves takes out JJ, Bethany, and Caleb. And then you see him pop up, you know, JJ's there, Bethany's there, you know, wiping all the water out of their eyes. And it's like, Caleb's boogie board's there, but Caleb's gone. <clears throat> and, uh, <laughs> and so Curtis, you know, we're watching. I don't really, I'm not paying attention, you know? I don't care if my kid, no, I'm just kidding, I did um, <laughs> So he like, he stands up and he like takes a couple steps to like, to, to go towards Caleb. And I realize what's happening and I just come blazing past him. I'm surprisingly fast, okay, for a man my size. And uh, I was running as quickly as I possibly could. And I hurtled the first two or three waves and went straight Baywatch diving into like the third or fourth wave. And I get to Caleb, I pull the boogie board, find the rope and pick him up. And, you know, he's like four years old. I pick him up and he's coughing and I hold him um, and just put him down. And I walk away. I was so happy he was alive. I was so happy he was safe. And I come back to the, the chairs there and I sit down and Curtis is like, <sighs> like tears just like falling down his face. I'm like, what is it, man? He said, man, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. He said, that right there is exactly, it's, this is exactly what he said. He said, that's a picture of God's love towards us. He said, you didn't shame him. You didn't condemn him. You didn't tell him you should have. You, you helped him. You loved him. And he went on. My friend, have you experienced that type of love of God? Or is your relationship with God something where there's a lot of fear? Do you see him as a loving father that's not coming with a lot of shoulds? Jesus took care of all the shoulds and the why nots so that you could boldly approach the throne, not of judgment, but the throne of grace in your time of need to where you can experience help in your time of need. Do you know the God of the Bible personally? Do you know the God of the Bible in light of the work of the son? Do you know him as gracious father or just mighty judge? He's to be revered and feared appropriately as mighty judge the operator controller of everything. This weekend, I was reminded there wasn't a single leaf that left any of our trees that didn't land exactly where it was supposed to land. He's to be feared. He's to be loved because he first loves us. Do you know him as loving father or do you only fear him as judge? If you know him as loving father, through the work of the son, the appropriate fear is there, but not the, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble 
type of relationship. Friend, I want you to know God as loving Father. And that only comes through faith in the Son and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's when you believe Jesus, there is a, a difference that is felt and experienced that brings meaning to your suffering. It, it brings a lot of poise to your present. And it, it, it gives a peace about your future, even eternal future. And I want you to know that personally. I don't want you to window shop the love of God. I want you to know it and feel it. I don't want you to only know the love of God through song and through reposting sermons and quotes or watching other people enjoy the love of God. I want it to be something that you personally experience every second of your life to the degree that when bad things happen, you don't think, what have I done wrong? But when bad things happen, you think, what does my loving God want from me out of this? What's he trying to say to me? I want you to know God this way. You can through faith in Jesus Christ. He wants you to experience his love deeper than what you could ever imagine, more profound than what you might dream. Will you let him? Would you humble yourself like Nineveh did and say, who knows? God might could bring meaning to my life after all. Who knows? It's worth a shot. That's all it took for Nineveh. God is that refuge from the storm. Trust him and find freedom and contentment, peace and happiness. Well, as a means of reminding us of his finished work on our behalf, Jesus implemented and gave the Lord's Supper to his disciples. This was the night where he got arrested just before he was crucified. And he spent time with his disciples in the upper room and he gave his disciples two visual aids. He gave them bread and he gave them wine. The bread is symbolic of the life of Christ that he lived as our representative and the blood is symbolic of the death that he died for us as he shed his blood in our place as our substitute. Representative in life, the bread, substitute in death, the juice or the wine. We're gonna have servers on either side of the stage. We're gonna have self-serve stations in the back corners. For those who are Christians, we're gonna come and we're gonna take the bread and dip it into the juice and the wine, remembering our deliverance, remembering our rescue, remembering how God has provided salvation and victory for us forever and always. Let's pray together as we share in the Lord's table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has indeed come, he's lived, he's died, Christ is risen, and Christ will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of our triune God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless this time, be on this time of communion and of worshiping and of responding and remembering. And triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen and amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering what Jesus Christ has done for you. You can come when you're ready.